Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Deceptively Fast Podcast with Seth Payne. I have a very special guest today. She's a friend of mine and somebody who played an integral role in my football career, registered dietitian Roberta Anding. She is the team dietitian for the Astros. She was a team dietitian for the Texans for 12 years, including the five years I was there. She also works with the Rice Owls as well as many other athletes and uh, medical establishments. Roberta, how are you? Thank you for I'm, coming in. I'm doing great, Seth. How are you this morning? I'm very good. I'm very good. excited to have you in here because you uh, you always I, – I read these things and – magazines and whatnot and sometimes I don't interpret them properly uh you are you are the expert and you the thing you're doing right now that's most interesting to me and where I'm gonna get a little bit fanboyish over is just the fact that you work with the Astros and (laughs) but remember I was there when we lost 100 games so which means you get to really appreciate and enjoy (laughs) it yeah you oh, yeah. you helped the Bud Norrises and all those other guys uh get their bodies together and they're they're reaping those benefits elsewhere now do you get a ring I do get a ring. You do? I do get a ring. I got the phone call from Bill Ferkus, our medical analyst, and said, here you go. Here's your form to go get fitted. So you actually have to go get fitted for your ring. So I'm really excited. When do you get it? Do you know? Don't know. Obviously, the ring ceremony is opening day, the second or the third, I think third, it's the maybe. second. You know what they did? It was smart because everybody's going to be there for opening day. So then it's day two. Day two. Of, I think the second home game is when they'll uh, they'll present them. To the team, but I'm sure, yeah, for for everybody else, whenever whenever, whenever. you get it, you get it. Doesn't it. make any difference. I'm excited. Are you gonna wear it all the time, or just at special events? No, just special because my guess is it's big. Yeah, it's big, <laughs> and so I don't know that I could, and I don't want someone to steal it from me, so I don't want to get robbed either. One thing that I've always been impressed with with the Astros pitching staff, especially when you look at pitching staffs, there's usually at least a few guys that are kind of sloppy. The Astros are in incredibly good shape, except for the one guy that brought some personality to them last year when he was up, which was Francis Martez. Francis Martez (laughs) was a little hefty. A little fluffy. He was a little fluffy, but then all of a sudden he shows up at spring training this year, and he's uh, he looks good. He's felt. Did you did you see this coming? Did you know he was working on Didn't it? Didn't see that coming, but the culture, and you know how culture yeah. makes people kind of fall in line. The culture is we have lean guys that eat well. So when you come up from the minor leagues and now you're around the Altuves and the Correas and all those guys, Springer, yeah. that have really changed their diet in the last couple of years, you kind of get it by osmosis. Did Do you see with kids that come from Latin American countries when they come to the U.S., do they have a hard time adjusting to the American diet? Because I looked at a picture of Martez when he was a when he was a younger guy, like 2014, 2015, and he was relatively svelte. Yeah. And then I'm guessing he spends a few years in America and with our with our glorious fast food culture, <laughs> it, it gets a little haywire. It does get a little haywire. And the traditional Dominican diet is chicken, rice, beans, plantains, sausage, and fruit punch. So there's not a lot of diversity in that diet. Mm-hmm. So you come up. And then the foods you recognize and the foods you can afford tend to be more fast foods. Mm-hmm. And so you now embrace your Dominican diet, which was starch heavy to begin with. And now you oh, add on yeah. crappy American fast food. And all of a sudden you've got the recipe for, oh, your weight's going in the wrong direction. So when you try to take a Dominican diet and make it affordable and what you can get in American fast food, it's like an amplified version of a bad fast food diet. It is. Yeah. And so uh, with the Astros organization being the farm system is the next you know major league team, is that I get to impact what's served in the Dominican. So throughout the affiliate oh, really? system, yep. So I've asked them, can you please 
roll in some American vegetables? Can you please roll in different fruits other than um, papaya and mango and bananas? Because you may not be able to get those affordably in the United States, Mm -hmm. not to Americanize them in a bad way but to get them used to what's going to be available in the minor league system. To prepare them for exactly what it's going to be like. And that's, that's interesting because one of the things the Astros have done a really good job of is streamlining their system on the coaching side of things to where in single a, double a, triple a Astros, they're, they're teaching the same pitching. They're teaching the same hitting all of that. Whereas not always, it sounds like, yeah, it would be like that everywhere. It's not necessarily because they'll hire a coach in single A and just let him coach the way he coaches. And then some guy gets up to, and then kid gets elevated to double A and he's got a different coach telling him different things. So you've got that from the very grassroots on up. Eat, eating, they're going to see yep. the same things in, in the Dominican as they'll see when they get here. We're trying that. Or you're trying We're that, trying that. And so clearly we also hang on to the best things about a Central or Mexican or Dominican diet. and Chicken, rice, and beans are performance-based foods. So the switch we've made is we use brown rice, black beans, nothing's refried, and then chicken. So there's absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, I wish I could get more athletes to eat chicken, rice, and beans. So we just have, um, I'm going to say, leaned it down, not use lard in food preparation. We've used olive oil. So we've made some subtle Mm -hmm. swaps. But we've hung on to the best of that cultural diet and then just added a ton of fruits and vegetables. So Francis Martez has lost weight. You you actually texted me the other day when we were talking about this on air, or maybe you tweeted it at me. Uh, and I think I might have been way, way, way off on this. Brian Windhorst from ESPN had reported that there was a time when LeBron James, during a playoff mm-hmm. game, supposedly gained seven pounds. And I my first reaction was, I could see how that's possible because you're, just, you're, you're hydrating all the time. Maybe you got an IV. At, at, at halftime, and then I, I saw you tweet a couple things, and then I saw another couple of dietitians say something, and I think I might have been way, way wrong on that. <laughs> Are you skeptical? I, I think it could go both ways because obviously, knowing- well, well, first of all, it would obviously be water weight. That's the only, if it were to happen, it would that's only the thing. only way, yeah. Only thing. So you would know that players can lose 10 to 12 pounds in a practice, right? Football mm-hmm. players can lose 10 to 12 pounds in a practice. LeBron James, from what I have read, is cramp prone. Yep. And he's freakishly lean. So I could see the whole idea, drink more, drink more, drink more, add some more salt, add more yep. electrolytes. So I could see it's plausible. But watching him play at such an intense level and playing a lot of minutes where he's generally not sitting on the bench. He's not a dry guy. No. He's not one of these guys that doesn't sweat. You know, no, he's a he's no. a heavy sweater. He's a heavy sweater. Yeah. So I think this whole idea of big weight loss or weight gain. Yeah. The average consumer reading that says, well, what is he eating at halftime? Well, he isn't. Right. Right. He isn't. This is all fluid. And you know, if I give you three liters of fluid, that's three pounds. Yeah. So actually, it's more than that. It's going to be a a pretty high amount of fluid that you're delivering. So I could see if he went and got an IV that he could gain weight. The only thing I thought was that he had, you know, he'd gone low carb for a while. Mm -hmm. It was a couple years ago. He went real low carb and he showed up and he looked emaciated. He did. And by Christmas time, he was back to normal. (laughs) He'd realized like, okay. And I used to see this all the time as athletes in the off season when the caloric demands aren't nearly as high and the glycogen demands aren't as high, they'll experiment with it and they'll lose weight and they'll feel good. But then you try to go and burn six, 7,000 yeah, calories a day. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's impossible. I think endurance athletes get away with it sometimes, like extreme ultra endurance athletes. But it's pretty, have you ever, what's the lowest carb load you've seen out of a successful athlete? It depends on their sport, right? Yeah. So if you're a pitcher, you can actually go a little bit lower carb, maybe 40%, 30% of your diet is mm-hmm. carbohydrate. But remember, carbohydrates not only the fuel of exercising muscle, particularly high-intensity bursts. So that is a pitcher, right? It's a high-intensity burst. It's also the fuel of your brain. Mm-hmm. And so focus and concentration, if I'm a pitcher, and think about the times you've been the most hungry in your life. You generally are a little crabby. Oh, I'm such a bastard, yeah. You you just want to like rip somebody's head off. Yeah. And so if the carbohydrate content is too low and the pitcher is now standing out there with his stomach growling and a little crabby, right. I don't know that that's necessarily great. So and to he's, me, trying to, he's trying to he's trying to shake off signs and, and yep. strategize and for what is that his next pitch is, yeah. Absolutely. So it's that focus and concentration that a lot of people just don't really think about in terms of overall sports. So to me, the lowest percentage of someone successful 
would be total percent of calories, and I would say probably 35 to 40. Really? So then, of course, if you're a distance runner, Mm -hmm. your carbohydrate demands are even greater. They get really high, don't they? Do you see when you get into longer endurance runs, are they at 65, 70% or more? They are. So my distance runners at Rice, it's exactly what they're doing. And so in order to manipulate that, and so when... And I'm sure somebody listening is going to say, well, I'm ketogenic right. and I, I can go out and run. People that are extremely low carbon burning fat yes, constantly. Yeah. That I can go out and do that. Why can't these individuals? And so until the science directs us someplace else, the position paper of my professional organization in partnership with the uh, the Academy of Sports Medicine, yeah. American uh, Society of Sports Medicine, until they give us different science – Depending on your sport, your carbohydrate demands are based on the intensity and duration of the sport. So if the intensity is short, probably don't need a lot. But remember, you know this from football, that it's the practice that kills you. Right. It's the practice that kills you. It's two hours. Yep. So when of my, having an average heart rate of it's an anaerobic sport, but you might have an average heart rate of like one thirty five because you're because you're going high and low and high and high low and, and low as you're recovering, your heart rate's still up. Yep. So I think folks will look at this and say, "Well, I run the hundred. My my carbohydrate needs aren't great. Agreed for that ten seconds. Right. But your two hour practice where it was ten repeat one hundreds, then you did some stadiums, then you might have done a little long work in interspersed in there, and then you went to the weight room. That's where your carbohydrate needs are jacked up. Well, let me ask you this. I, I did not know this. That you actually worked with the Houston Ballet for fifteen years. Okay. I did. So ballerinas notoriously skinny. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm guessing on a pretty low calorie diet, but they mm-hmm. practice all day long. So what are you what are you managing ah, with ballerinas question. where I know eating disorders are a huge concern? What what's their diet look like? Actually, when you look at ballet, uh-huh. this group of professionals is honestly one of the smartest groups I've ever worked with because they have to maintain you know, their careers can be relatively long. You start as a little kid, you go up through the levels of the pre-professional company and then the professional company. And so their diets in terms of what they're eating are low calorie, but not quite as low as you might think. So female ballerinas, maybe 15, 1800 calories mm-hmm. a day. For somebody that weighs what, like 95 pounds? 95 pounds. pounds. Yeah. So they're small. So their calorie needs per pound of body weight are actually higher than you would guess. Mm-hmm. And, but they tend to eat low glycemic index carbs. And yeah. you know what that is? These are carbohydrates that um, last a long time in your system. So instead of having Rice Krispies for breakfast, you might have oatmeal. Oatmeal is going to be a lower glycemic index carb. It's slow, gradual rise in your blood sugar. It lasts longer. So they're all about making sure that they've got fuel. But ballet, it may be you watch someone demonstrate something, you watch, you practice it. So they're there for a long time, mm-hmm. but the intensity is relatively low. It's a lot of technique work. It's a lot of technique work. And Great you're way not, of saying it. Right. You're, doing, you're practicing a move or a sequence, but it's not... The entire routine. Right. But unbelievably great eaters. And I would imagine just, yeah, very disciplined. And is it <laughs> extremely disciplined? Now, because you work with, look, you work with, you've worked with wrestlers. And mm-hmm. I know res- wrestlers eating is a huge concern and eating disorders can be a concern um, with younger women and women athletes. Um, do you, How do you manage that side of it? How do you manage the, hey, you need to be strict with your diet, but then there is a tendency sometimes or a concern that, when does that veer into eating disorder? Yeah, so if someone um, leads always with, I always eat healthy food, I go, uh-oh, because what is that? What is your definition of healthy food? So in it's like the, when one of your athletes tells you that? Yes, okay. or they'll say, every morning for breakfast, I have a half a cup of oatmeal, two tablespoons of berries. The minute somebody counts ways and measures, mm-hmm. it's like, uh-oh, this is going in the wrong direction. So my general mantra is, Athletes don't diet and exercise. They fuel and train. Mm -hmm. And getting people to change that mindset that if you want to be good at what you do, you really have to embrace food in a little bit different way. So obviously, you know, there are going to be high risk sports for eating disorders. You mentioned wrestling with guys, dance, uh, volleyball because of the clothes women wear now. Yeah, Yeah. volleyball, um, track and field. So track and field has always been the less you weigh, the mm-hmm. faster you are. The strength of sport, or the, 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 
what is what am I looking? The power to weight ratio yes. of sports, yes. where you're you want as much power as possible. But the lighter you are, Correct. the faster you're going to move. But at some point, there becomes diminishing returns, and yeah. so it's like anything in physiology is bodies are like race cars, and when you give them what they need, basically, they'll go down the middle of the road fast. If you veer off to the right or to the left, the wheels come off, mm-hmm. and so distance runners or any athlete that consistently underfuels they're in trouble. Right. They're in trouble. Estrogen goes away in women, right? So they end up not having periods. But what most guys might be surprised is testosterone, testosterone right. goes down. And so and you just end up you end up weaker, flatter, you, you end don't up recover. Weaker. And well and injured, I suppose. Yeah. Yes. And you also end up with a body fat distribution that's more female looking, mm-hmm. right? So you end up with the body fat not being midsection. Yeah. It's hips and thighs. And when I worked at Texas, very concerned Children's, about the whole. I don't want to. I don't want to be like a gender role uh, jerk here or anything. But most male athletes don't want to look like women when they're performing. Uh, I think I'm safe in saying that. Oh, I'd say 100. I mean, it's it's if bad you, for performance. To, if you didn't say that, if you, yeah. If you didn't say that, I would, because nobody males don't want to look like females. But in just even just for pure performance reasons, the more if you're playing football, the more masculine your physique, well, the better. Yeah, yeah, because if you don't have adequate testosterone, you can't get muscular hypertrophy, right? Yeah. So that whole idea that eating disorders and disordered eating is only female. Female athletes, mm-hmm. factually not true. So I think um, we've not had a really good biological metric in guys other than stress fractures. And mm-hmm. if a guy has a stress fracture, I start to get a little bit concerned that are you underfueled to the point where you're now at risk of do, losing testosterone? Do you see that with some guys where they might not look undernourished because they're they're bigger but they're actually not getting enough i mean usually most americans you get way more protein than you actually need yeah but with athletes sometimes do you find that that some athletes for whatever reason just don't get enough protein uh or is that male rare? athletes yeah male athletes is pretty rare <laughs> rare it's real hard to not get at least enough okay. it's it's real hard i keep telling my <laughs> brandy and i have a constant <laughs> argument about how much protein i need or she knows it for longevity's sake <laughs> you don't need to you know like the minimize the protein. I'm like no 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 i need this fuel i need this fuel i need at least a gram per pound of body weight and that's probably for people who train and yeah. lift that's probably correct but I, but I train the way I used to train like once a month <laughs> that's the problem I'll go out I'll go out and do a heavy weight workout and then I'm eating a gram per pound of body weight the rest of the month hopefully Dan Riley doesn't listen to this with you training once a month your former I train coach. I train but I don't train like the way that you used the to. kind of training that it takes to justify needing a gram of protein per pound of body weight is well, I don't know Seth because the some of the newer science that com- that's coming out of Stu Phillips' lab um, from McMaster University in Canada is actually showing the people who need the most protein are people who are calorically restricting. Or dieting. Dieting. Or, okay. Trying to meet their body composition goals yeah. need more than a gram per body weight to hang on to lean body mass. Oh, yeah. So if you're, if you're dieting, you need as much protein as a strength-trained athlete, mm-hmm. which— for a long time, that really wasn't what we thought to be true. So if you're trying to cut body fat yeah. and you're t- restricting your calories, you actually have to up your protein like you're lifting heavy in the gym. And that it does – has that been confirmed that that helps satiate you as well? The protein yeah. tends to cut down your appetite a bit? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So to me, the big lead is you have protein at breakfast. Yeah. But think about uh, women who are actively dieting. They'll have a bowl of cereal at breakfast. They'll have a salad at lunch. And by the time they eat protein, it's dinner. Well, that's not the way the body works. It builds and repairs muscle 24 hours a day. So a good percentage of your day, you were protein-free. So I would really try and get that person to maybe embrace some eggs, some Greek yogurt, some milk, something to get that protein up to at least 20 grams mm-hmm. in the morning would be my goal if someone's trying to actively lose weight. You know, the first the first guy that I was ever exposed to that made me nervous about guys altering their body composition or being too strict with their dieting was Rob Johnson, who's a quarterback with the Jaguars. I, I was a teammate of his with the Jaguars, but then he went off to Buffalo, and he, he just got injured all the time. But Rob was extremely disciplined, but it was – it was old school, like 1980s, what people thought of healthy eating then, which was like a bagel with no butter in the morning, yeah. you know, and just extremely low fat, uh, extremely not necessarily is very carb based, but 
the wrong kinds of the carbs, kinds very of carbs. refined yeah. carbohydrates. In basketball right now, there's a trend for guys to play a lot skinnier. Um, where forever, you know, in most sports, everybody was trying to get as big and as muscular and as powerful mm-hmm. as possible. The sports changed some where there's a lot more running now. Um, but I think guys have also latched on to they've, they've really looked at the the high tech monitoring yeah. of and, and I think they're starting to discover, wow, you know what? It's, it's great to look big and strong and to be powerful, but we're performing better and recovering better. When we're, we're losing so weight, are you seeing that in any other sports? I, I, I haven't really seen it. At I've, least in the, I shouldn't say basketball. I should say in the NBA at least. In the NBA, I haven't really seen it, uh, but I think that's an emerging trend in baseball that guys don't want to quite be as big, and so you see a lot of changing um, when you bring in exercise uh, physiologists as your sports science people. Yeah. You're starting to see: is it always a good idea to have that amount of muscle on your frame? Is it quite as joint friendly? as it might be if you weighed 20 pounds less. Especially over 162 games. Exactly. So the question is, is it an advantage to be muscular? Sure, it's an advantage to be muscular, but not if you have to last a season. Mm -hmm. So I think just not looking at the physique, but looking at how is that athlete going to play throughout the season becomes the other metric that a lot of people for years just didn't look at. Didn't look at at all as can you play that way. I haven't seen that in football. Um, And as you know, the NFL Combine and most football teams have a bod pod. And we can now correlate second contracts based on body composition. So if a guy has more muscle mass on his frame. In in the bod pod, for those of you that have never seen it, it's – uh, it's a pod <laughs> that you get in <laughs> in like your an underwear. Egg. Yeah, and it uh, uses what changes in air pressure yes. to determine your body composition. So it works like underwater weighing, but yeah. instead of placing, displacing water, it displaces air. So football is the only sport that we can look at and say, if you're a quarterback, you need to be probably between 10 and 14% body fat. Mm-hmm. I've asked the bod pod people, give me the bod pod numbers of the Super Bowl winners. Give me the bod pod numbers of the guys that go to the Pro Bowl, not just the 300-plus athletes that go to the Combine. I want to know who are the best. And so you can look at some of the guys that have an atypical body type, Tom Brady being one, Mm -hmm. atypical body type, and say, is that more now what we should consider the norm? But second contracts are linked with two things. One, vitamin D status. And two, um, how much muscle mass you have. No kidding. So now how much muscle mass or what percent muscle mass? It's how much actual muscle mass. So I wrote an article um, with a great guy at TCU. His name is John Oliver. And we actually did something for the Gatorade Sports Science Institute on body composition in football and found that for second contracts, guys who had more muscle mass got paid more. Yeah. So the more muscle mass at that position actually translated into dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. Do we have that for any other sport? Not that I know of. Which probably sounds basic to a lot of people, except that a couple things go on is one, you don't necessarily have an accurate way of measuring that if you don't really pay close attention to it. Um, And the other would be, okay, exactly. How, how do you know you're increasing muscle mass? Because old school strength training is a whole lot of, you know, I got my bench up to 500 versus no, you actually improved your whole body composition um, or you've maintained body composition. That's one thing that Dan Riley, the strength coach who was here with the Texans originally in that you first started when you started measuring with the bod pod dan dan was very very good even though a lot of people would criticize his techniques as being too old school or whatever it was and i say old school i guess antiquated yeah he did a better job of maintaining muscle mass during the season than a whole lot of other people that are very concerned with power cleans and whatnot. Best I've ever seen. Yeah. And so a lot of folks don't like the specific monitoring of a bod pod to know exactly how much muscle you have, exactly how many pounds of fat you have, because football is chronic injury, right? Mm -hmm. Football players are chronically injured, and the injury response makes you selectively lose lean body mass. So you could be in great shape in September – And then even with a good strength conditioning program, even with a great strength conditioning program, your ability to gain lean body mass during the season is almost zero. Because you're going to be injured at some point. Because you're going to be injured. And as soon as you get injured, your body shuts down at least partially in in that one part. Yes. And and then that muscle mass goes. I will never forget this. Coming into the weight room um, on a Monday after a game where David Carr got the snot beat out of him. 
and looking at him, and I thought, looks like someone took a baseball bat to your body. Yeah. He's limping. He's blue and purple. That's not a whole lot different than being in a car accident, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got this chronic trauma, and for this is true for all people. So if your listeners get sick or they get injured, you lose lean body mass really pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And that is what football is. It's chronic injury. It's Yeah, and you talk to people like massage therapists or chiropractors that work with car crash victims, and they say, <laughs> they say that. They say yeah. that on Mondays, when you work on a lot of football players on a Monday, they feel like they're car crash victims. Yes. Which I suppose if there's a message to people that have been in accidents, it's – it's it is amazing how much you can do with active recovery. Yes. Like when you feel like you're in pain and you don't want to move, whatever your physical therapist or doctor allows you to do an exercise, it goes a long way. It goes like a long to, way to actually move yep. and get out there because that's what football players do. They right. get on Monday and they they feel awful, but they work out and, and they <laughs> and then on Wednesday they go out and practice yep. and they run around and somehow you strap it together by Sunday. I'm glad you brought up Tom Brady. Because I sent you, I sent you one little excerpt of his book, the TB12 book. Mm -hmm. And with Brady, I, I read through that book. I actually leafed through a lot of parts of it and read through some of it. There are a couple things going on. He and his trainer uh, use some what some people would think are some kind of out there techniques or have some out there theories, and yet he's been. Whatever he's doing is working for him. Correct. And that's where I don't I, I hesitate to ever overly criticize somebody whose method is working. But there were a couple things in there that I'm really curious about. And one of them is just because I know I know and knew so little about it, and yet Brady seems to really, really preach it is the whole thought about eating an alkaline diet versus an acidic diet and, and what it can do for him. Yeah. And if when you think about those concepts, what they're actually talking about is what happens to a particular food when you digest and metabolize it. Mm -hmm. So people might think, oh, okay, an acidic food would be an orange. Mm -hmm. No, actually, it's an alkaline food because of what happens when you digest and metabolize it. It's basically what happens to those waste products. So fruits and vegetables in general are Alkaline. Okay. Okay. They're alkaline. So you eat them, and it, and their theory would be that your body wants to be more basic than acidic. Correct. So if and what he's saying is that if you eat these foods, it end up being basic in the body or less acidic, then that that creates less inflammation. Less inflammation, and probably there's more data. There's only been a couple studies on athletes looking at the benefits of an alkaline diet, uh -huh. and most of them are really inconclusive. Where you see more fruits and vegetables, and maybe that's the translation of an alkaline diet, where you see more fruits and vegetables, think about chronic illness. So when we talk about chronic illness, whether it's kidney disease, diabetes, whatever, there's always going to be some kind of inflammatory process there. Mm -hmm. So eating more fruits and vegetables does make you slightly more alkaline. And I think it's more for chronic disease management, not necessarily can he throw the ball downfield? Right. But as he's trying to manage his season and manage the inflammation that comes with repetitive use of throwing a ball, could I argue that a plant-based diet is a good idea? Sure I can. And there's science to support it. Acid-forming foods are high proteins. Right. So if you are only, and this might be an argument against paleo, that if you're eating all these high-protein foods and that's the basis of your diet, are you making yourself more acidic? Mm -hmm. So, for example, we know bone health is dependent on being slightly more alkaline. All right. So fruits and vegetables are critical for bone. It's not just did you have a glass of milk, calcium, vitamin D. It's are you eating the right kind of diet that's going to support bone health, right. not just focusing in on a singular nutrient, which I think is what a lot of people have done. And I think with paleo, it's interesting because it, it seems that a lot of the, I guess, the more scientifically minded paleo adherents would say, would more lean towards, hey, it's a high fruit and vegetable. It's a high vegetable diet. It's yep. a high plant-based diet, but with natural meats and they might have different views on whether you should eat more or less red meat or whatever. It seems like a lot of the, the thought leaders there are moving away from red meat or grudgingly they're, or they're perhaps were. Or they're trying to get you to eat grass fed, right? Yeah, they're trying yeah. to get, get you to eat grass fed. So that to me, and of course now my, my dietitian colleagues are going to like um, put a hit out on me, but to me the advantage of paleo is you don't eat junk. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So if I get rid of donuts and cookies, candies, chips, cakes, and pies, I'm going to feel better. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt I'm going to feel better. So if I get more of a lean meat, um, maybe grass-fed, maybe more chicken and fish into my diet, and a ton of vegetables, I think that's where all dietitians would have to agree. Uh-huh. Right? So to me, it's like, just don't go too extreme with it. Whatever your philosophy or your theory is behind it. Well, it, it would be like with acupuncture, say. I don't I don't care what the actual mechanism is. And if you want to say it's cheap, but it works, then fine. <laughs> you know, I don't care. Now, if you want to start breaking down into what actually happens physiologically, that's great, too. I guess the danger is in when you're trying to sell something based on something. Cause yeah. You, you you open the door to all the other charlatans that want to sell anything else that might not actually be that exactly. might not actually be productive. Exactly. So to me, the advantage of getting on being on a paleo diet is getting rid of junk. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, you're not supposed to have any alcohol on most paleo diets. So would people say they feel better? Sure, they would. Can you be an aerobic or highly intensive anaerobic athlete? without adequate amounts of carbs, I've never seen it. Well, and that's where I've seen, too, a lot of paleo people, once they start working with athletes, they most of them, at least that I've listened to or read, will concede eventually, all right, yeah, we're going to, we got to, it can still be paleo, if that's your theory of paleo, that sweet potatoes are okay, or whatever other versions of of carbs are okay. Because even if you train in a low-carbohydrate environment, then... When you add carbs, because I've experimented with a lot. Yeah. If you go low carb and train that way for a month and then all of a sudden add carbs back in your diet, oh, it's like nitro, nitrous. You know, it, it just, it just, it, it amps everything up. It's like you're taking off the weighted shoes all of a sudden. Oh, uh, and I think the, the science behind that, a lot of that comes from John Hawley and Louise Burke over in Australia where they'll show that if you train, oh, it's called low carbohydrate availability. Train low, perform high. Yes, yeah. and then you add back in the carbs, you're actually altering the enzymes that are needed for digestion. And there, some of the stuff that John Hawley's come up with on the value of doing that mm-hmm. is pretty actually pretty impressive. So you experienced it and said, you know, I feel like I'm on nitro, I'm gassed, I'm ready to go, I yeah. feel great. So this is where uh, hopefully experienced sports dietitians are not just stuck in the there's only one right way of doing things. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of right ways of doing things. The biggest thing you need from your athletes is buy-in. Can you convince someone that what you're trying to do is going to, A, promote longevity in their career? And, you know, when I was at the Texans, it was always, I'm really interested in you as a daddy and a husband and a son, mm-hmm. all of those other things. So I need to be concerned about your overall health, not just um, are you going to go out and – play well on Sunday. Right. When I was done playing, it's been, it's been like 10 years already. I was just thinking of this. It's been 11 years. Um, but I was thinking about how little I know about what's really changed on the performance side of things. Cause when I was playing, when it came to nutritional supplements, there were a few rock solid things that dietitians could say, okay, there's enough evidence here that yeah. this works. Creatine was one of them. Yep. Um, whey protein was yep. was another one. Uh, I, I think at the time that beta alanine mm-hmm. w- was already pretty well established. So those three things are things that I used. And because you did a good job of getting us stuff that we knew wasn't going to be contaminated. This was like medical grade supplements yes. that yes. we were going to test positive because somebody had thrown something sketchy in there or anything. I, I think probably the two biggest things that I've seen that I haven't really investigated in the last decade since I've been out are one, everything that They've learned about vitamin D yeah. and that you've uh, been very active with. And then the other would be the beetroot juice, yep. which I'm completely 100 <laughs> percent ignorant of. All I know is I see beetroot juice and it sounds like something I don't want and I don't need. It's so, not delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with it. Let's start with the beetroot juice. But I have a bunch of questions about vitamin D because the vitamin D, I think, is probably more relevant to a lot of our non-athlete listeners. But what's the what does the beetroot juice do for people and what? How prevalent is it right now in sports? It's a big deal. In fact, um, when I was at the Texans, this was before the beetroot juice supplements came out, probably after you had retired. We were flying with beet juice. We put it in the belly of the plane because there wasn't a dietary supplement because it's a vasodilator, actually gets better oxygen delivery to the tissues. Mm -hmm. So we used it when we went to Denver. To, right, it's because you theoretically altitude. should be getting more oxygen to your tissues. Yeah, yeah. so well, altitude. I remember you had 
you had tweeted something kind of vague about it, and I didn't know if you could disclose it at the time, and that's what you were talking about yes. was the beetroot juice. Yeah, so we. the problem is it tastes like a glass of dirt. Oh, really? It's oh, not it's, sweet? Oh, my oh, no God. Kidding. No, it's okay. bad. I hear beets, and I think it's sweet. No. It's not. Oh, because no. it's the root. Uh, oh, it's <laughs> not delicious. I should have brought you some, um, and then you probably would have thrown it that at me. I would have never used it. It's, it's but very I've, earthy. Really? Mm-hmm. And now... All athletes. I mean, is it? It's very common now. Very common. Of, yeah. Very common. So there are beet juice supplements, mm-hmm. but if you're really trying to follow kind of an alkaline formula, why wouldn't you make your own? And so you can take beets, throw them in a Vitamix, juice them, maybe, but add something sweet to it to cover up that earthy taste. You could put in some pineapple, some apple, Mm -hmm. ginger makes it a little bit sweeter. And now you've got the best of everything in one glass. Oh, and this was the, you know what? I lied. I know a little bit about beetroot just because I read one of the articles you had tweeted out last week about kind of a correlation perhaps between beetroot juice or at least uh, is it the nitrous oxide uh that it ends up, but that also exposure to sunlight yeah. Might have an effect on nitrous yeah. oxide, which might have an effect on various things like seasonal affective disorder, vitamin D, yes. um, synthesis, all of those, which leads us into the vitamin D part of it, which I, I feel like anybody that's like looked at the cover of a magazine in the last knows 15 years it. knows that vitamin D deficiency is a big thing. What, Where is the data right now on just how e- effective supplementation is? So, okay, I'm... I'm, I'm Deficient in vitamin D, I supplement it, I raise my vitamin D levels, and then do you actually see a substantive benefit in that yet, like the actual outcome on health? In terms of uh, muscular function, absolutely. So uh, in 2008, I went to Bob McNair, the owner of the Texans, and I said, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. I want to test the players for vitamin D. And of course, I loved working for Bob McNair. And he said, what's the benefit? And at that point, it was more cardiovascular health, blood pressure, things like that. So in 2008, we did um, vitamin D. We were the first team in the NFL that did vitamin D testing on everybody. 41% of the team was deficient. Mm -hmm. Now, think about where we live. We have sun exposure available. And at that time, players were just really resistant to the field turf. They'd rather be outside versus because that bubble was hot and steamy. Yeah, it it just felt... Bad. bad. It just didn't and feel good being bad in to there. Me. Right. It smelled bad to me. So uh, players wanted to be outside. So if you think about maybe, uh, although it was early in the morning, maybe a couple hours in the sun, mm-hmm. and 41% of the team, none of the white guys, the guys who were deficient were African-American. Mm-hmm. So it's much more prevalent in African-Americans. What we know is that vitamin D is needed for normal muscular contraction, muscular function. It's needed for the immune system. So you know how football is. As the season goes on, you're much more likely to have upper respiratory infections. Um, when I was there, we had Aramark, and I would have Denise and Isidro clean the lines and sterilize the lines multiple times yeah. throughout the day because guys just got sick. Mm-hmm. So we now know that vitamin D is a gene regulator. So it upregulates what are called anti-inflammatory. So there's that word inflammation again, anti-inflammatory cytokines, and it also upregulates your immune system. So athletes who have adequate amounts of vitamin D don't have some of the illnesses that go on during the season. They have a better immune function, probably more important to take vitamin D when you're sick than vitamin C, mm-hmm. just because what it does to your um, the genes that regulate your immune system, and that it's also needed for normal muscular function. So athletes that don't have adequate amounts of vitamin D end up with more muscle pulls. And you know who these guys are. They tend to be guys who are freakishly lean, right? Defensive backs, things like that, tend to be freakishly lean. And that one hydration is going to make a difference there, but so does vitamin D. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work on this is coming from a great researcher. She's a friend of mine, Enette Larson-Meyer at the University of Wyoming, that's looking at how, how do guys play in the season when they're vitamin D replete, Uh which I think is going to be what everybody's concerned about, right? Can I prevent muscular injury? Can I prevent illness that's going to take you out? And are there conclusive results yet with, yes, we've shown that they do stay healthier when they're at normal levels or if you raise them? Because I guess that would be the question is when you, because raising something 
doesn't always necessarily solve the underlying issue. Because why why are guys able to spend two or three hours out in intense sunlight and still be vitamin D deficient? Well, and that's because of the melanin. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's the melanin. But I think you've hit on something that's important. Uh, it's called the vitamin D paradox, meaning uh-huh. that African-Americans have lower levels of vitamin D. And we know vitamin D is important for bone, yeah. right? But they have less osteoporosis than white people. Yeah. So it's like, okay, there's got to be something genetically different if you're African-American versus Caucasian. Uh So I think this is one of those things that it's kind of like a work in progress. It's a more complex. Absolutely. It's more complex than just... Like you can get if if you have scurvy and you get vitamin C, you're not going to get scurvy. (laughs) Vitamin D, it looks like it might be a little bit more complex. It's not just a matter of. It's not necessarily just a matter of raising the vitamin D. Perhaps it is, but you might there might be something else there. Yeah, I think there's something else there. And then the question becomes, what's the good blood level for vitamin Mm -hmm. D? It's not just how many international units do I give you. What is our endpoint? Where are we going? And so. I would say that the end point in terms of what should your blood value be, probably between 40 and 50 for optimum performance, where a lot of folks will supplement to 30 yeah. and then say, well, there was no effect. So, yeah, I think it is more complex than people uh, give it credit for. And I think it's going to be one of these things. It's a work in progress. I don't want to keep you here forever. I'm going to end up uh, roping you into this probably more frequently in the future. Um, but I'll give you like a gift card or something. Don't worry. Don't worry. I got you. I got you. Uh, I, uh, I was talking with you before the show about fish oil and I told you that I was taking about one gram of fish oil a day. Uh, and then you kind of shocked me with how much you said I should be taking. I, why do I need so much fish oil? And is that how much everybody needs? You suggested it might be like four or five grams. That's 4,000, 5,000 milligrams yep. of fish oil a day. Be, part of it's because you're not my size, right? Yeah. So you're not five foot four. And so it's a dose response. So in general, it's about 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So if you think about that, if you weigh about 100 kilos, about 220 pounds, that's a lot of fish oil, right? That's yeah. a lot of fish oil. The other mistake people make with fish oil, one, is they don't take enough. Two, they don't take the right kind of fish oil. So the only thing that really matters in fish oil are these two abbreviated words, EPA and DHA. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at a label, you want to make sure it'll say 2,000 milligrams of fish oil. Fine. But then you look at it, and it's got 200 milligrams of EPA and DHA. I'd say don't waste your money. And just a bunch of other stuff. A bunch of other stuff. A bunch of other omegas that don't necessarily help you out all that much. So when we talk about brain health and cardiovascular health, the rock stars here are the amount of EPA and DHA. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm looking for. So if I – and that's what's in salmon, for example, is EPA. If I gave you that fish oil and traced it, Where does it end up in your body? Well, it ends up in cell membranes. Good thing. It ends up in your brain, Mm -hmm. and it ends up in the retina of your eye. So when we look at its role in cognitive health and concussion management, it's the dose. Are you taking enough? How much EPA and DHA? You need at least 2,000 of EPA and DHA if you're average size. You're a tall guy. So I'd say you need 4,000. And if you dig into the literature on what's the maximum dose, great guy by the name of Michael Lewis, and he's used this. He's a military surgeon. He's used it in military guys that come back from war that suffered a blast injury, Mm -hmm. like blew off your arm or leg. Mm -hmm. And, of course, if the forces are great enough to blow off your arm and leg, you're concussed. Right. Right? You're concussed. And he's given as much as 18 grams, 18,000 oh, wow. really? milligrams. So he's an unbelievable – it's the Brain Health Research Institute, um, but he's a military surgeon, Michael Lewis. And I've heard him speak before, and his argument is the reason why fish oil doesn't work for most people – is the doses they too just low. don't take enough? Yeah, so it's okay. kind of like saying to a woman, you know, take a half a birth control pill. Yeah. <laughs> see how that's going to work for you. So it's a dose related response. So that's I a take... bad. That's a bad profit loss statement right there. Whatever money you're <laughs> saving on the birth control, uh, you do not. That's not worth it. Not, Spend the whole shebang. Not yeah. worth it. Yeah, you got it. You got to go for the gusto with that. So right. for most people, they don't take enough. Or fish taking oil. like an eighth of an aspirin. Yes. And of course, aspirin doesn't work if you take an eighth. Correct. Um, so the dose is t- is too low. Most people take. 
Can too most low people of a dose. tolerate that much? Sure. I know some people it thins their blood, doesn't it? It does, um, and so you might bruise a little bit more. Yeah. But when you start to take a look at the really serious things with too much fish oil, you don't see it like a, a traditional blood thinner drug. Mm-hmm. It's not quite as powerful as a blood thinner drug. So I take four thousand milligrams of EPA and DHA oh, really? a day. Yeah. Okay. And I do I it for that. Yeah, I do it for. I've got an issue with my hip. And I, it's unbelievably effective That's in so terms of... so expensive, Roberta. It is. <laughs> but I'm going to say this. You're worth it, Seth. You're worth it. I guess you're so. Worth I it. guess my brain's worth it. Uh, you know what? Okay, I, I lied. I'm going to have one more question. And I know the answer to this already, but I was at my neurologist the other day. I say my neurologist, a neurologist that I was seeing, but he had given me this little uh, six tips for reducing risk factors for cognitive disorders. And one of them is to get your BMI, your body mass index below 25. Mm. So I did a little body mass calculator index. And that for me, that's, <laughs> he wants me to weigh, he doesn't say this, but that would be 199 pounds for me, which would be to lose 85 pounds. I don't, and, and take me down to where I was my sophomore year in high school. No. So, and, and a lot of people know that if you're a certain build, that your body mass index probably isn't a good indicator. So what do you suggest instead of body mass index? Uh, percent body fat. Yeah. And I will brag about you. You are the leanest defensive lineman I've ever bod potted. So I would not use BMI with you. And I know what your neurologist is going for, for yeah. the average person. Yeah. And this an is L- from like just a pamphlet he yes. gave me. So it wasn't him. Yeah. Yes. The average person, BMI correlates very well with body fat, uh-huh. but it doesn't for athletes. It doesn't for people who train intensely. So um, at one point, you had a BMI of 37, mm-hmm. which, would oh, have, yeah. <laughs> would, which would have put you into bariatric surgery Extreme category. risk factors, yeah. But freakishly lean as a defensive lineman. So to me, it was never about your BMI. You And I wouldn't be worried about your BMI now. Mm-hmm. It's your percent body it's fat. It's percent body yeah. fat. And the, for people that try the bod pod the warning I would give them is you're going to be shocked by the percentage because it's accurate as opposed to body calipers, like which, yeah, it ends up because you said earlier, you know, quarterback should be 10 to 14 percent. And probably in a lot of people's minds, if they're if they're using calipers, right, they don't realize how lean 10 to 4 percent is. Yes. And a lot of people that you might otherwise say, if you if you if, if somebody's claiming they're three or four percent body fat, they're actually probably what? Like Higher those, than that. Uh, so to me, it's um, there's about a five percent yeah. differential. So if I were to caliper you when you were nineteen percent, yeah, you would be fourteen percent mm. as a lineman. So the the technique with the bod pod is that it gets at all of your fat, yeah, which includes the fat or around your organs for protection. It includes the fat in your brain. For women, it includes breast tissue. Oh, so yeah. when you start to think about percent body fats, most athletes don't like the bod pod mm-hmm. because they're going to say, oh, I'm not that fat. But if we adjust it based on that differential, then I, yeah, okay, that's what I was in college or that's what I was when somebody calipered me. For women, what is the difference? Because you'll see, I know women have higher body fat percentage, even if they're extremely lean with their subcutaneous yeah. fat. So you see a woman with abs, shredded but yet her body fat is still higher. Where is that extra body fat? A great question. So it, if they're a distance runner, mm-hmm. um, there's a term called intramuscular, in between the muscle fibers, intramuscular triglyceride. So for some of my distance runners at Rice, when I bod pot them, I'm a little bit surprised really? that they might be, I'm going to say 16%, because looking at them, I wouldn't see that, but part of the adaptation of training as an endurance athlete is you tuck a little bit of fat that's available locally for the muscle. Oh, really? So uh, there are people that surprise you with the bod bod pod. And then we had guys at the Texans that I couldn't get a reading, which generally means they're under 3%. Because they're so low. Oh, really? Those guys are in the training room over – they just get hurt. They're chronically hurt with soft tissue injuries, so too low is not a good no thing kidding. either. Yeah. Do you know what the mechanism is for that? Is it this just? You it just seems don't like have they, enough fuel. You're not. Oh, okay. You don't have enough fuel that's available. So yeah. even because even if you're in like a highly glycolytic activity where you're burning sugar, yeah. you're still burning. You still need some fat, right? Because yeah. think about it: is there could be times in between plays Mm -hmm. or times that you come off the field, offense goes on, defense comes off. There are times that you can change your fuel tank, if you think about it that way. So having some kind of calorie source internally available is a good idea. So those freakishly lean guys just 
end up with soft tissue injuries. So for for 03 percent of the people listening, you need to get fatter. <laughs> like you're <laughs> like what percentage of what percentage of the general? I'm thinking of guys I knew because I probably know the guys. I know you don't want to say it on air. I'm I'm pretty sure I know the guys you're talking about, yeah. and I'm thinking like they're probably they're probably maybe one in. One in a few hundred thousand yes. have a body composition <laughs> like that because I'm thinking already to, to make it to the NFL you're already you know one in several with. thousand right. and right. then these guys are freaks among NFL players. Yep. And it was and and some of these guys you know well Corey Bradford I've talked to him about it on air before he just Corey could eat Corey could eat two dozen donuts a day probably and still mm-hmm. look just freakishly lean. He's just wired that way. Not that that would be healthy, but, no, he, <laughs> no, but he's but that lean. Even with those guys that are freakishly lean like that, that can eat anything that they yeah. want and not change their body composition, you would know this, that guys who don't pay attention to what they're eating right. end up not being able to recover as quickly. Yeah. They end up um, going out and getting injured the next week. So, yes, it's calories, but we had some guys at the Texans that were eating, I won't mention his name, but he was eating cups of trail mix, uh-huh. would walk out of the, the training room with two 20-ounce cups, easily 1,200 calories. And you, you look at this and think, that's more than I can eat for the whole day uh-huh. in this these cups of trail mix, and never would gain weight. But the argument was, I need you to not be inflamed. I need you mm-hmm. to eat quality food. So um, with Mr. Bradford eating all of his donuts, we had multiple <laughs> conversations about he was, And he was open to changing it. He was really cool. Yes, he was. Awesome. He's a great guy. He's really great guy. He's the best. I just, I was always incredibly jealous of the way he could eat and just and do, and do whatever. Yes. And, and looked like, I always told him he looked like G.I. Joe. Yeah. You know, yeah. the body that's not really quite real because he was so lean and in such good shape. Yeah. Well, Roberta, thank you very much. This was delightful. And, so fun. Um, I, like I said, I'll, I'll drag you back in here again. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll, we'll clean this up on Friday. I'll do my solo podcast. So tune in. Thanks, everybody. Awesome. That thank was you. fun. Thank you very much. That was fun. Let's see. Let me save this before I botch it. You see Corey Bradford? I, uh, he's like a Texans ambassador, right? Yeah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.